When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another episode of the UConn Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm joined by Dan Madigan and UConn blog football correspondent Luke Swanson. We are here to preview UConn football season. Folks, at long last, almost two years after playing their last game in November of 2019, UConn football is taking the field this Saturday at Fresno State. At 2 p.m. on the CBS network, we're going to go through all of the position groups, talk through the schedule a little bit, uh, you know, where we think the Huskies will be strong, where we think the Huskies have a chance, what will be interesting to watch on the season. We'll also do um, our customary vibe checks. Um To start, I think the most critical thing about or the most, you know, Top storyline, I would say, probably going into this season is the quarterback competition. Um, We haven't heard a ton about it, but we do know that there is no set starter. It's going to be a, uh, it appears to be at the moment, uh, a two-man race between Steven Krajewski and Jack Zergiatis. Luke, what do you think about the QB competition thus far? and, and who do you see uh, getting the first drive, I guess the first first shot this Saturday? How's it going, Amon? Extremely excited for another UConn football season. It's been a while. I got to say, I see uh, Jack Zergiotis taking uh, the first couple snaps for uh, UConn football. But in a surprise twist, I see them going with the old ULM two quarterback formation. How does that sound, guys? I can't say I'm surprised. I feel like UConn's always been in quarterback limbo for at least, I guess there was that last year of the David Pendel era, if we want to call it that, um, where it was pretty obvious that he was the guy, but seems like more often than not, it's always a quarterback carousel and Sometimes the best way to figure it out is to just ride the hot hand. Uh, it seems like Z and Krajewski are pretty closely matched. It doesn't seem like anyone really outperformed one or the other in camp. Uh, so it's just going to be who performs better during the games. Uh, Zergiatis was, was really good as a freshman. I thought he had some good arm strength. Obviously, the decision-making wasn't great, but it's hard to fault a true freshman for turning the ball over and, and not making the best decision every time. So. Uh, going to be interesting, definitely going to be something to keep an eye on. And I do hope that if the coaching staff decides to commit to using both of them for the first few games of the season, which Luke, I kind of agree. I think they will just because neither of them have really seen any game action. Um, it doesn't hinder the development of, which we'll get into in a little bit, a, a pretty young, but unproven, but talented wide receiver class and, uh, a pretty good running back in Kevin Mensa. So We'll see how it works out, but uh, I got to agree, Luke. I think Swaggy Z is going to be the starter for that first drive. Many people are are loving the Swaggy Z moniker, I'm hearing. So very interesting for you to say it, Madigan. It's definitely catching on with the kids. In, in all seriousness, my answer is is definitely uh, definitely uh, Swaggy Z. Uh, he just has experience at the FBS level. Uh, good, Whether it's good experience or not doesn't really matter in a case like uh UConn has right now they just need the guy who's been out on the field before and he has experience with uh, wide receivers and the run and all uh, all the skill position players really and he, he has he does have some familiarity there and if you believe uh the coaching staff over the summer he's really matured a lot as a player which definitely good news because he was not the finished product his freshman year there there were a lot of 
a lot of tough mistakes, tough plays made, but uh, th- that would definitely be my pick. I, I think the, the, yeah, there's not only is there going to be a, a, a split for this game, which I think we can kind of read between the lines from what we've heard and seen Randy Etzel say that, you know, they're basically more or less treating this like an exhibition game out here, you know, first game and first live action for the team in two years, a lot unsettled, especially at quarterback. I, I, I honestly envision a pretty even split of snaps because in the, for this Saturday, uh, because I think they'll want to see as much of both as possible um, in, in live action. Um, we did get to see a little bit of Krajewski. Um, I think he played one full game and, and parts of another. And I believe for all of that or a chunk of that, he had like a, uh, he was playing with a pretty serious injury as well. Um, so they, they both have, have potential, I think, to win the starting job. They're both to me, unknown, similarly unknown quantities. I don't, um, I know Zergiatis played a little bit more, but um, I, I do think it is pretty wide open at this point and, and uh, likely to last uh, through the Holy Cross game, I would say, and, and at the very least, but potentially longer. Um, I do think it is nice to see, though, that the rest of the offense, well, other parts of the offense do look quite solid. I feel pretty good about the offensive line. I don't know about you guys. And then we know that we know that Kevin Mensa is a beast. We'll get to that later. But uh, Luke, how do you feel about the O-line heading into this season? It's I'm kind of ambivalent on the offensive line, to be honest. I think that I left tackle uh, Vandermark. Tremendous, uh, tremendous player, very good leader. And then at the guard spots, uh, Dylan Nedrowski, um, hopefully I'm saying his name correctly. Nedrowski, he's, uh, he does have, uh, some experience and Haynes, obviously the other guard spot has a lot of experience. He was a, uh, starter two years ago. So those three, I'm not extremely worried about uh, Chase Lunt by all intents and purposes uh, should be the starter. The other tackle spot, he's a very good athlete. Then uh, at center, that's a little less proven. Uh, Sidney Walker, the uh, Juco transfer from a couple years ago. But the, the one area that has me a little concerned is continuity because the offensive line is the one area of the, of the field where continuity is almost uh, n- nothing really trumps talent anywhere. I mean, you can say scheme versus talent or whatever, but on offensive line uh, continuity comes close to trumping talent in terms of uh, evaluating that. And just the fact that uh, taking away three starters on a five man offensive line is not uh, extremely ideal. Uh, say you count Nidrowski as the third starter, still three, uh, starters returning out of five isn't the best, uh, I would say. Uh, I, I don't know how much – I don't even know if I'm qualified to say how much uh, the extra offseason really counts as just uh, continuity there. I'm sure it counts for some of it. But, again, that's it's practice versus uh, a real game experience. So – and there's nothing really that matches that. So I would say I'm a little more lukewarm on the offensive line. I think that if there's a, a kind of soft spot in the offense, uh, they'd be there. It's not really a place you'd want a soft spot, but that's what yeah, we're dealing think, with. And I think that's a good point too, with just the fact that like, uh, you know, in terms of live reps and the value of live reps, uh, the O-line and the D-line are the toughest places to do that because that's the thing in practice that they do the least, right? Is kind of like live blocking and everything because uh, of the desire to avoid injuries there. I do think, you know, given how young the roster was in 2019 and, and in the prior years, um, I do think there is some benefit of the fact that, you know, it's just, they get 
two years more mature, two years in the weight program that they they benefit from, and maybe they're not, um, you know, totally getting manhandled by by some of the other teams, at least. Um, but I do think that's a good point about the continuity, and then you know, add in the fact that of anyone, they're probably getting the least valuable live reps in practice because we know that to some extent the skill players can get, you know, pretty live, live feeling reps through seven on seven and other types of practice, but um, maybe a little bit tougher on the line, but I think, you know, just compared to some of the other groups on the team, they at least look solid. And, and given the fact that the O-line has been in previous regimes, a very big weakness for UConn, I, um, I'm still decently happy with where they are, I guess. The fact of the matter is they'll be, you know, blocking for what we anticipate to be uh, a really strong running back group. We know that it's led by Kevin Mensa, um, who we'll, we'll get into more about. But Luke, what about the rest of the room? I mean, you know, who else is expected to be a key contributor at running back uh, beyond Mensa? Well, Mon, if you uh, believe Randy Edsel, Mensa hasn't even won the starting job yet. Wow. That's it big year. news here. You got to earn it, even though you're uh, uh, just over uh, 1,100 yards away from breaking uh, the rushing record held by literally Donald Brown. Never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, even though. Uh, Edsel likes to talk about uh, leadership, and uh, we know he likes all of his best players to be really great leaders as well. Uh, Mensa is definitely uh, going to be one of the stars of the offense to the point of them possibly relying on him too much, to be honest. But uh, when you have, sorry, good. Yeah. But when you have someone uh, of Mensa's caliber back there, it's kind of hard not to. Uh, in terms of outside of Mensa, uh, Robert Burns uh, transferred in from Miami. He had a few snaps uh, uh, behind the offensive line, used a lot in special teams, but he is a power five uh, caliber athlete. I'm allowed to say power five now that uh, we're uh, FBS independent. Sure, sure. Uh, just putting it out there. Uh, we used to have to say power six. I know. Pain, painful stuff. Painful stuff. It is the power five and the independence. We all know, as we all know. Of course, of course. Uh, but Robert Burns, yeah, he uh, took uh, 94 snaps uh, out of the backfield of Miami. So not an insig insignificant amount. And uh, he, he just really brings a different type of running style to the team. Uh, Mensa described him as a, as a Mack truck. I remember, I think, no, it was a bulldozer to Mensa's little sports car hmm. in, uh, pre in preseason. Well, that's good. That's good to have. And... Throwback to Rodney Purvis. Ooh. Yeah, sometimes vehicle references don't always, don't always take as, as great as anticipated but i think the analogy here at least helps us understand what kind of runner we can expect burns to be um and especially given that as you said the risk of overusing mensa um maybe burns can take some of those short yardage lots of people in the box situations um then another guy who uh might see some time in the backfield uh thinking back to nate tompkins uh Mensa might have to share the backfield with another Nate, Nate Carter, a freshman from Rochester. Uh, early enrolling in 2020, uh, running back coach likes him a lot, Kyle Weiss. And um, yeah, he's had a couple off seasons under the, under the uh, uh, strength and conditioning program, and he'll, he'll probably see a couple snaps back there as well. Yeah, I mean, he was named he was named a starter, I believe, technically, right? Because Edsel did name two starters at running back on the depth chart. 
Yep. Yeah, it was Nate Carter and Kevin Mensa for the starters. Uh, and Brian Bruden was listed as Carter's backup, a freshman. And uh, Robert Burns, the, the Miami guy, was the backup for Mensa. I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I, I do think it'll probably just come down to a lot of Kevin Mensa, even, even if Burns is, is good uh, or Carter pans out. I just feel like they're comfortable using Mensa a lot. He's shown he's been able to kind of handle the volume. I think they're going to lean on him as, as much as possible um, because he's really good and he's going to be UConn's best chance to control the clock, uh, stay ahead in games they're up. Um, he showed some promise as a receiver. He was averaging like 11 yards per catch. He only had like eight or 10 catches in 2019, but uh, he's improving in that regard. But I think I also think that if he wants to break the school record and, you know, we'll get into the schedule after, but this season is probably going to get away from UConn over the last three games, just to, you know, put it lightly and we'll talk about the opponents after, but I could easily see them feeding Mensa if he's a couple hundred yards short of the record and it's in play to, uh, to try and boost his stock up, uh, try and get a training camp look um, or as an undrafted free agent and, break Donald Brown's record. But overall, I, I feel like even though Edsel isn't necessarily calling the shots on offense, I do feel like Edsel's always been able to kind of establish a pretty decent run game with, with guys like Mensa. Um, so I don't think this year will be any different. And I think that'll be a strength and should take some pressure off of whoever the starting quarterback is, uh, as long as they can commit to some pretty good play action. Well, uh, yeah, it's interesting you should mention catching passes. Uh, the UConn roster does not have a lot of people who have done that in a college football game uh, ever. Uh, the, if we look at, at 2019's leading receivers, we've got Cam Ross, who's going to be leading the pack for the Huskies again this year, expected to be really the top, top dog there. Also will be returning kicks. But then... Uh, 2019's second leading receiver was Ardell Brown, grad transfer, no longer with the team. Third leading receiver was Matt Drayton. Unfortunate injury uh, during the preseason. He's out for the year. After that, it's Jay Rose, uh, Art Tompkins, who is again, no longer on the team, then Cam Harrison, Cameron Harrison. So it's, it's a very unproven group there at pass catcher. Um, I think Jay Rose is someone who, you know, we can look at who could be a good, um, a, a good blocker, but, you know, decent threat out of the backfield. Um, it'll be interesting to see if any of these running backs can be good receiving threats out of the backfield. Mensa has not been so much, you know, in the past, but anything is possible. Um, someone's got to step up here though. So Luke, what do you think about, um, you know, Who's, who's leading the pack for the Huskies in terms of the passing game this year? I think in terms of stepping up, I, I, Jay Rose has always been, or has been for the past couple of years, uh, a good run blocker and just kind of catching passes like a, a tight end does, not really being a huge receiving threat. I think that in terms of stepping up, especially with Drayton out for the year, uh, I think if there's anyone who can step up, I think it's, I think it's Rose and I think it's shown during a uh, uh, preseason and media days. He's, he's stepped up as a leader as well. So it'll be interesting to see if he's used more as a pass catching threat. And then uh, in terms of filling that wide out position, I think that Hairston as uh, definitely the guy who uh, will step up at, uh, at the wideout role. And uh, he, he's a big target. He has uh, a lot of a big play potential. And um, I think behind Cam Ross, I think he'll be uh, definitely the number two receiver. I don't think that's really breaking news for anyone, but I think that uh, he, he's going to be the one to kind of, to kind of step into that role as a, as a big, strong wideout who can uh, go up and get it, as they say. Let's talk about Ross for a little bit here. I mean, um, really good, fresh, really productive freshman season, over 700 yards, four touchdowns. Um, 
He's he's on the smaller side, but definitely very fast, great at yards after the catch. Um, you know, what do you think expectations should be for him uh, for this season? I think that a, a, a thousand yards season wouldn't be completely ridiculous based on how much they're going to have to rely on him. But I think it all comes down to if he has continuity at the quarterback position. I know the receivers like to say that all the, all the quarterbacks kind of swing at the same in practice, but uh, I think that having a connection between the quarterback and the receiver and that familiarity will really, uh, really be the differentiator as to whether it's another uh, 700, 800 yard season, or if he really, really kind of ignites in that front. Yeah, Luke, I agree. I mean, he put up 723 receiving yards um, last year or in 2019 as a true freshman. So I don't think that's a crazy leap to think that he gets um, another 250 yards or so uh, in a couple catches. And basic, based on how much he played and how much Sergiatis played, I imagine that he probably had the best continuity and, and camaraderie with, with him, but they've also been working out throughout the past year or so. So that chemistry could have changed, might be more comfortable with Krajewski. Definitely something that we'll have to keep an eye on. I know out of the three of us, I think we're all in on Cam Ross as a wide receiver, but I do think Luke, you and I are probably a little higher on his upside and what he can do in this offense than I'm on. Um, and so I just think it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how he's used. He had three rushes for like 30 yards. He was averaging nine yards a carry. I, I think it's something where they just want to get the ball in his hands in any way possible. And I know Matt Drayton was a guy that they used somewhat frequently on jet sweeps. So with him being out, they might rely on Ross more for that. And uh, just another thing to do to, to get the ball in his hands without having to worry about necessarily who's throwing the pass. Right. So as long as that quarterback situation is in flux, um, or until they figure out this two quarterback system, which, you know, has never been figured out before, but I don't want to discredit Randy Etzel. Um, they're going to need to be creative with getting the ball in his hands because he's one of the better playmakers on offense outside of Mensa. Uh, I think here it's also worth just naming who were the other um, receivers on the listed on the depth chart. Thank you so much, Randy Edsel, for for giving blessing us with a depth chart on Monday of this week. Um, we, we seriously cannot thank you enough. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think again, we were, we were making guesses and, and question marks and, and, and really not much to point at besides a handful of receivers who had, you know, like eight to 10 receptions for like 120 yards, um, of, of previous production. But, so, you know, Cam Ross is named the, the top starter. Heron Morisseau is the second listed starter. He's also on the smaller side at 5'10". Um, then the next two receivers, again, listed on the depth chart. Who knows what it means? We've got Clevens Clerkius and Keelan Marion. So sorry for any names I may have gotten incorrectly there we didn't know what to expect um at this position um i still think you know some of those other i think cam hairston you know is another name that still matters to us i think um elijah jeffries is also a name that still matters to us um yeah it was really strange to me to see those two left off that was another guy that i i was going to mention I, I forgot to mention elijah jeffries had a had a, had a handful of targets two years ago. So, yeah, who, but, you know, Edsel, who knows what's going on? Right, exactly. Edsel could be playing a little diplomacy with his with his depth chart here. Um, now, now Fresno State wanted to to scout for six receivers instead of four. Exactly, they'll be super focused on looking up Keelan Marion's. Uh, High school film. I mean, I do, from you know from our recruiting coverage, I do know that Marion was a highly rated recruit. Um, so maybe he is you know the the Cam Ross of his class. You know that's that's the easy uh, way to assign that. But I will say at least um, as we mentioned, those top two guys listed are on the smaller side. I think someone that's bigger has a shot at, you know, being able to make a difference. 
um, to whatever extent that's possible. Yeah, I'd like to throw out a name for for a bigger uh, receiver in Jace Medlock. Mm. He was a three-star right. recruit uh, in the class 2019. He's an 81 overall in the 24-7 uh, composite. Was kind of like a hybrid wide receiver tight end when he committed. He kind of was between both. He's 6'2", 206. Um, I think he could be a decent red zone threat option. He'll probably be behind Rose, but if they run any two tight end sets, he'll be out there. So um, I think he'll have an opportunity to be a part of the offense, whether he takes advantage of that or not, who knows, but he should have the hands to be able to be another option and maybe a reliable check down at minimum for whoever the quarterback will be. Yep. Listed as the backup tight end. Totally. I think that's, um, you know, he's, he's from Texas. Yeah. I might have to hitch my wagon to him. I I might be really. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That's what it's all about. Really folks. I want to throw another name out there. He's not with the team anymore, but Quavon Skeins. How about that? I hope, hope you're doing well. Quavon Skeins. Um, Kevin's Quirkius, also from Montreal, Quebec, Canada, mm. like, like Zergiotis. So, yeah, you know, big, big recruiting hub for Randy Edsel. Uh, there's, I think, I mean, there's got to be at least like five or six players from Montreal or the, or the area on the roster from, uh, what's the, the name of the province? Quebec. I think there's, there's, there's at least, three or four players from Quebec on the roster. Um, So we love that Canada pipeline. So that is the offense. I mean, I think we know, we know a little bit about it. At least it's, it's going to be definitely focused on the running game. Uh, Whoever plays QB, whoever is the, the, full-time starter eventually when that time comes will not be asked to do a ton um, because of the offense's kind of schematic dependence on the, on the running game and a pretty good group of, of running backs. Um, But still a lot unproven when you're this unproven at quarterback, that's also pretty tough. Um, I think at least, you know, we'll be look, we'll have our eyes, peeled for signs of improvement and, and what we see from the guys under center. Um, it'll definitely be interesting to watch. We can only hope it will be more interesting to watch than previous Husky seasons. Moving on to the defense, a group that has been Randy Edsel's calling card in previous coaching stints of his. Um, Again, I think if we look across the group, we can see reasons for optimism here. Um, I think there's one group, one position group on the defense that is a very large fat question mark. Um, but to me, the front seven looks pretty solid at least. So I, I have, again, mo- modestly high hopes for an improved unit. How improved to be determined, but Luke, um, Let's talk about the D line here. A uh, couple of pretty, pretty experienced and disruptive players that UConn seems to have up there, right? Dare I say that UConn football might have a top 70, 50 defensive line unit in. <laughs> I saw him onto a spit take. <laughs> But yeah, a top 70, 50 defensive line unit in the country this year. Uh, Travis Jones is getting a lot of NFL draft draft type. And I don't say this a lot, but like when it's UConn, a UConn player getting NFL draft type, it's probably legit. It's the one thing that uh, Randy Etzel has done very consistently in his uh, both stints at UConn is get players paid. So... Uh, that's always good, but yeah, Travis Jones, uh, he's, uh, kind of a, kind of a superstar of the UConn defense, if we're being honest, uh, he's had, 
he had 55 tackles his freshman year, which is a lot. And 45, 40 tackles in 2019, uh, nine sacks during that time. And apparently uh, this offseason, he turned into uh, Captain America. I had just, by all accounts, just walked into media day, just absolutely ripped as heck. Broad shoulders. Yes. Yeah. Uh, first first thing anyone noticed when they walk in the room. So uh, he's going to be an absolute cyborg on the defensive line this year. Uh, and then uh, Wal Ugwak, uh, another Canada native. We're, I, I do appreciate being the official uh, FBS team of uh, the, the Great White North, to be honest. Sure. But anyway, he, he's, he's good. He had... A whole bunch of tackles uh, in 2019. Sorry, 19 tackles in 2019. Uh, four tackles for loss, four sacks. And uh, played in all 24 games since he arrived on campus in 2018. He's just a, he's a really solid interior line. So I think that interior line between Jones and Ugwak is pretty set. And then uh, the uh, outside linebacker slash Ed edge rushers uh kevon jones and eric watts both uh, very solid options with uh, jo- uh travis jones and Ugua kind of clogging up the middle they'll really have free reign to go after the quarterback if they're not dropping into coverage which uh, uh they've been known to do uh, playing in a hybrid position in uh the uh, spanos defense but yeah i think that if there's one area that UConn, uh, UConn football that I'm not worried about going into 2021, it's the defensive line. Yeah, it's really crazy about Jones's development. Obviously, he's improved since he came out of campus, but I remember when he committed and all the stuff that came out of camp, it pretty much was obvious right away. Even when they signed him, I think they were like, yeah, he's Travis Jones is going to be really good. He's going to be an NFL player. and he fell through the cracks to and basically ended up at UConn from, from what I remember. And obviously it's great that he's continuing to develop and getting absolutely shredded this year, but this is the type of player that Randy Etzel made a living on, right? Are, are these type of people that are clearly very talented for whatever reason, aren't getting the looks from the high group of five power five people, um, and swoops in and brings them to UConn and helps them become an NFL talent. So it's, it's a testament to his development to show that he's continuing to be a monster, but I think it also shows that there, you know, Edsel really does possibly have some, something still left in the tank and he can still kind of find some diamonds in the rough and bring in legitimate talent. I wouldn't call Jones a diamond in the rough. He was a three-star, he was a three-star recruit, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I just, it was to get him weird. to UConn is a big deal, but I feel like there's hype around the three-star recruits that come to UConn, but I, and maybe it was just when I was looking at articles, but I feel like when I was reading or editing our article about Travis Jones, the quotes and the stuff that Edsel said, I'd never really heard about a, a similarly ranked recruit. Like it, it just, it seemed like he was maybe a little different I, and, and maybe I'm just misremembering it, but I so, feel like well, he was. Some- he was- he was an in-state guy. He did have like a lot of P5 offers. I think, you know, we can get into the nitty gritty of the recruiting stuff, but like, yeah, there's a lot of scenarios where people have listed offers and some of them are committable. Some are not, who knows what the exact situation is. Usually people don't turn down all of the schools listed on Travis Jones's list to go to UConn. We, we know that for a fact, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, Getting Jones, either way, yes, getting Jones to UConn is a, is a huge deal and a star for Edsel. He's done a good job recruiting. You know, I, I think we should give him at least credit for that, for the level that UConn is at, you know, and has been at. Yeah. Um, he's, he's done a good job with the recruiting. I think we could even say that was what David Benedict brought him in for, is his ability to make the most out of the recruiting terrain, what UConn is, and all of that. Um I would say, I would say Uguac is, is maybe a better example of someone who we could call more of a, a diamond in the rough. 
Um, although he was also, you know, decently rated player, but um, what I, what I love about both of them is that they are disruptive and making tackles for a loss uh, from the interior line, which we know is, is super hard to do and speaks to how super talented they are. And then, yeah, I mean, both Kevon Jones and, and Eric Watts have, have experience. So um, this is about as much as we can ask of, of a position group for UConn to have um, proven stars, future NFL player, maybe, maybe players, um, and, and maybe something that we can count on to be disruptive, anchor the defense, that kind of thing. Behind them, I, I will say, is a linebacker group that, that also looks pretty solid to me. Um, a couple of guys that we know as, as former DBs in, in Ian Swenson and Omar Fort, um, some guys who have been around the program for some time, at least, um, think, thinking about uh, DJ Morgan, Hunter Webb, Jordan Morrison, Jackson Mitchell, all guys who have kind of been with the team for two, two to three years. Um, again, I, I feel pretty good about this group and behind the D line in particular, um, you know, this could be, this could be a strong, solid, experienced group that again, you know, is part of the anchor of a, of a really good defense. Maybe what do you guys think? I have a question to throw right back at you. Well, we all kind of know, uh, 2019, the, and especially in 2018, the defensive backs, the defensive back play from UConn has been maybe some of the worst defensive back play I've ever seen in yes. uh, college sports. Uh, it's it's kind of mean, but it's, it's what was out there, to be honest. Do you think that it's a good thing or a bad thing that we have all these converted defensive backs uh, moving to linebackers, either it's a good thing for the uh, defensive backs or good thing for the linebackers. What's your take on that? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, obviously it's a decision the coaches made um, and they chose to, they had their experience. They could put it anywhere on the field that they want and they chose to put it there. Um you know, the other thing I, I think we can say is some of these lines are kind of fluid with between, um, you know, the third and fourth or second and third linebacker um, and defensive backs. So to whatever extent those guys as linebackers are a benefit to the past defense, you know, I think is, is relevant and worth uh, discussing and that both of those guys are maybe in kind of like hybrid E types of roles. Um, but it must, you know, I would hope, you know, I would really hope that if the coaches did make that decision consciously, that it's also because they feel really good about the guys that they do have lined up at defensive back to replace them. Um, we know Edsel has gone to the well of kind of like Florida, Texas guys, uh, and DMV guys, um, who we know are battle tested. Um, the, the group seems to have good size. Um, and even though they haven't played many live snaps, they've been with the program at least for, for a year or two. Um, so I, I, I hope they moved those experienced guys to linebacker because they, they like the younger DBs that they have, that they recruited and that they maybe specifically recruited to get early playing time at UConn. Um, because I mean, obviously we we all know how important pass defense is, given how much passing goes on in college football. I would I would sincerely hope that that is the case, um, but of course, who knows? Yeah, I think Aman, I do think you're right. I believe Swenson was one of the guys that was brought in to play that hybrid safety linebacker role in Crocker's three three five. Right. So it makes sense that he's more of a linebacker now, but yeah, I think it's interesting, Luke. It's definitely something I never thought of before, but I do think Omar Fort was pretty competent in 2019. Um, Jackson Mitchell 
was not a converted defensive back, but he was a solid linebacker as well in 2019. And having DJ Morgan as a backup using air quotes, because we all kind of expect him to play a fairly decent amount, regardless of whether he's technically the starter or not, uh, is probably a good position to be in. He's a solid, dependable player. So um, I agree. I'm not really concerned, I guess, about the linebackers or the defensive line. Um, the defensive backs are always going to be interesting just because we saw how bad firsthand it could get when you start young, inexperienced, maybe not good enough yet players um, like in 2018 and part of 2019. So we'll see. I do think there's a little bit more continuity there, and I think that'll help, but it's definitely the biggest question mark with this team, I think, on either side of the ball, right? Yeah, I think definitely a linebacker, uh, not really worried. I think the experience there is good. Uh, defensive back, I think it could either go one or two ways. I, I mean, I don't, it's it's going to be very hard to have a repeat of uh, 2018 and part of 2019 because it's just, it would be really hard to for that to happen. But uh, I think we just have to uh, kind of trust in the coaching staff and their uh, kind of policy of bringing in these uh, athletic guys from uh, uh, the recruiting kind of hotbeds trust in uh, Corey Edsel, who's been doing an extremely, extremely good job in the recruiting trail. I think uh, I could definitely have to point that out, but I, I think that uh, the athletes that they have now are better than the athletes they had then. And I think that, uh, I think that there, there's going to be improvement even from 2019. Uh, yeah, I, I would say absolutely from, from those years because the difference is that those people playing, so, first of all, there's some of the same ones, um, but those were true freshmen, right? These were people who were months removed from their senior prom uh, and then all of a sudden going up against, you know, future NFL players at UCF and SMU in terms of offensive, you know, in terms of some really good receivers who have come through those programs. Um, and, and so that's obviously gotta be really tough. I, I will say that the fact that they have some experience, but is, is better than otherwise, you know, there's, there's even a senior and a junior listed on the depth chart, uh, which, is, which is pretty good. Jeremy Lucien, we know has gotten a lot of playing time, uh, you know, when he will, or got a decent amount of playing time. Um, but yeah, this, this group is absolutely the question mark. I, I think the way it's going to play out, hope, you know, I think the optimistic view of how it would play out is they'll still get, you know, they'll still take their lumps against the good teams, especially against even the teams with just, just good offenses. Um, I would hope that against some of the UMasses and the FCS teams um, and some of the other teams that maybe we're calling beatable on the schedule, my hope is that they play a little bit better against those, um, you know, whereas those 2018, 2019 teams were getting torched by everybody, including Rhode Island. Um, you know, I, I, I anticipate that this group, even with its inexperience, relative inexperience for live playing, um, could can be better than that. And then, as I said, kind of alluded to earlier, I do think DBs can get pretty close to live reps, you know, in practice. You can go one-on-one -on -one against a receiver. You can play seven-on-seven. Seven. Even when you're in, you know, shorts and pads, you can still get a pretty decent, you know, um, read on, you know, scheme, covering people, understanding routes, understanding tells, all that kind of stuff. I think you can get pretty good practice on that. Um, that's not, again, not to say that I think that this group will be a surprise unit or anything like that, but um Yes, I, I certainly solidly anticipate them to be a, a step better than than 2019 um, and, and before. So that's our, our preview of the roster. We will just quickly go through the, the special teams. It's actually um, two freshmen who will be handling the kicking and punting duties, Joe McFadden, and Hayden Kerr, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, hope everything goes well for you guys. And as mentioned, Cam Ross returning punts, 
two freshmen listed as the kick returners. We'll see how that goes, but um, that's what we've got for now. And um, yeah, you know, again, reasons for optimism, how much optimism remains to be seen uh, and, and how quickly they can adjust to their first live action also remains to be seen. Um, moving on to the schedule portion of our preview, uh, the Huskies are opening up the season against Fresno State. As we mentioned, they're four touchdown underdogs. Um, so as, as discussed, I anticipate UConn will be playing in, in exhibition mode uh, this weekend. After that, they've got, um, you know, a, a, well, they've, after that, they'll have their home opener against Holy Cross. Holy Cross, you many fans listening may remember the 2017 scare that they gave UConn fans when, uh, back when we opened the door on uh, the second Randy Etzel era. We had a lot of hype going into that game as well. Hopefully, um, UConn turns out a little bit better there. Just to run through the schedule after that, Purdue, Army, Wyoming, Vanderbilt, UMass, Yale, Middle Tennessee State, and then they will end the season with three tough ones, Clemson, UCF, Houston. Um, we'll get into our, our thoughts on the, the win total here. Um, let me throw this, this opening salvo out. How do we feel about just the matchups against the, the FCS portion of the schedule? I don't think these are necessarily the easiest FCS matchups that UConn could get on the docket, but um, I still think they're, they're winnable games. Holy Cross is one of the better FCS programs in the Northeast right now. I believe they um, made the playoffs last year uh, in the spring, and I believe they made it in 2019 as well. Um, they're a solid team. They're, they're going to play UConn close, uh, much like they did in 2017, but I, I think even without the experience, um, I think going up against Fresno State will kind of allow UConn to shake the rust off and they'll be a little more focused and on top of the ball a little bit against Holy Cross. So they should be able to use the Division Division One FBS size and athleticism that they have to their advantage and kind of pull off, pull off a win. Um, Yale is scary. They're, they're a really good team. Uh, I saw them play in 2019 based on my research for the preview, they've kind of kept things under wraps, but they should have a really good chunk of that team back um, aside from their quarterback and their top two wide receivers. Um, their running back Zane Dudek is a really solid running back, probably could play at the FBS level um, if he didn't want to go to Yale and we'll probably have <laughs> We'll probably have some some NFL looks in terms of undrafted signings or or maybe even a late round flyer in the draft. He he's that good, so that could be a real test for the UConn defense. Even with Jones and Uguak in the middle, could be a real problem. But I do think UConn is going to be able to get by. I think if you had to pick all the teams in the Northeast that are FCS that UConn could play out of a hat um, or try and find the the easiest matchups. Holy Cross and Yale would not be it. There's definitely easier opponents that UConn could play, but uh, they're really intriguing games. Holy Cross, a lot of it's pretty close by. Probably a lot of alumni in the area. Yale, obviously, storied rivalry, and there's Yale alumni everywhere. So it'll be interesting. The Yale game in particular is probably going to be really fun. I think that's going to be like one of the better attended home games of the year, and should be a pretty good environment, weather permitting. But I feel pretty good about UConn against the FCS portion of the schedule. Yeah, Dan, Yale is really good. I know I, they're just for any fans who are kind of just see the two FCS games in the schedule and think automatic wins. I, I feel a little more confident against Holy Cross than Yale specifically, just because Yale is a, uh, and the past probably five years, they've been uh, one of the top programs in uh, the Ivy League. And um, just that they're really good. And I would not be surprised if they uh, made it a close game against UConn. So I think um, fans, that there, there might be easier games against non-FCS teams, to be honest. 
uh, which I'm I agree sure we'll get to very shortly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, I'll just come out and say it. I, I think you could make a pretty good argument that Yale is a tougher matchup than than UMass, and UConn isn't that much better than UMass, which shows why it's going to be tough to play, to beat Yale. Um, but Yale is basically recruiting at the same level, if not better, than most of the bottom FBS teams uh, for a multitude of reasons that we don't need to get into. But there's a, a lot of good players there, and, and Dudek is one of them. Um, there, It's going to be a problem. But that stretch of basically all of October, from October 2nd at Vanderbilt, at UMass, and then home for Yale and Middle Tennessee, I think those are four winnable games. Uh, I did my Vanderbilt preview on the blog. I picked UConn to beat Vanderbilt. In hindsight, I kind of wish I had that one back, but I do think it'll be really close. Um, Vanderbilt has a first-year coach, uh, a former defensive coordinator from Notre Dame, Clark Lee, and they might be fine, but I do think it's just going to take some time for them to, to figure some stuff out. And my thinking was that UConn could take advantage, but uh, we'll have to see. But I think UConn needs to win two of those four games to kind of have some momentum going into next season. Um, three would be really good. Four would be obviously incredible. But I think those are really all winnable games. It just depends on how the team shakes the rust off after the first four or five games of the season and how the team actually looks um, after the first one or two games. And we'll probably have to adjust our expectations a little bit one way or the other after that. Yeah. Some of those, um, the, uh, the advanced college football metrics that also include FCS. Um, obviously we all know huge caveat with UConn this year and, and all that, but still they, they do favor Yale um, over UConn, of course, again, grain of salt, but at to, to your point, they do favor Yale over UConn more than some of the other teams. Um, so I think that would, um, certainly give water to the idea that Yale could be, uh, not even, you know, one of the two easiest opponents on the schedule, um, could also be an interesting candidate for the homecoming game. Uh, if that is a thing in this era of life and the world and public health laws, um, but you know, there's, there's two October home games, Yale and Middle Tennessee. Isn't it usually around that, that time? Or yeah. So when I was doing the, the preview for the Yale game, I basically assumed it was the homecoming game and had to double check and realize that it wasn't. And I think it's exactly what you said, just due to the way COVID-19 kind of makes things change super fast. They just probably felt it wasn't worth committing to a date at this time. Um, so maybe it'll be towards the end of the season. Um, maybe they won't have one at all. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. If they are going to have a homecoming game, that Yale game would be great. Cause that's actually, if you look into the history of it all, a really fun rivalry between UConn and Yale. For sure. For sure. Let's, let's talk about the rest of those games though. And um, uh, the non, the non FCS games though, again, I, I, we, I totally agree. Yale especially could be a, a loss. Um, either of those games could be a loss. Anything can happen in this great, beautiful game. Um, but if we were to kind of rank, you know, from, from one to three, or let's say one to four, the FBS games in terms of like, we give UConn the greatest chance of winning, right? It's, it's UMass, Middle Tennessee, and then you, and then I think to your point, Dan, it is, it's that middle, it's, uh, it's at Vanderbilt. Is that really how we feel the, the three most winnable games, FBS games of the season are? Yeah, I would probably say so. Um, I do think, I think they could hang around with army just because if the run defense isn't that bad, if, if Jones and Uguak can do a decent job, army isn't going to score 50 points. Um, they're going to hold They're going to have possession of the ball for 40 minutes, but they might win 21 to seven instead of, you know, 55 to, to 20 something. So 
I think that's something where you never know with, with the triple option, there's always weird things that come out of that. UConn does have some experience going against that recently, having been in the same conference with Navy. But yeah, I would say UMass, Middle Tennessee, and Vanderbilt. If I had to give a fourth, I would probably say, I guess, Wyoming, just because it's at home. Um, but Army's probably right there. But I don't really expect either of those to be wins. To go on record and say you guys are absolutely bonkers for thinking that Vanderbilt is a more winnable game than uh, Wyoming or even Purdue for that matter, because uh, even with the roster situation going on at Vanderbilt and a first-year head co- coach, you you know what I think? I think that the uh, that entire situation kind of bumps them above Purdue as a winnable game, but I still think. Wyoming uh, Mountain West athletes versus uh, SEC athletes. It's kind of a, uh, it just kind of sets, sets UConn way behind the eight ball in, in terms of fans, in terms of uh, facing Vanderbilt. Yeah, I agree. And see it happening, but I'm not. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think that's a fair point, Luke, but I will go in and just explain some of the rationale behind that. So Vanderbilt canned their coach, um, pretty much immediately after the season ended. And I believe they went 0-9 or 0-8, um, but they did play an all-SEC schedule, but they didn't play Alabama. They didn't play necessarily all of the absolute SEC powerhouses. Um, not that there's any like really truly bad teams outside of Vanderbilt in the SEC, but they still were pretty bad in the SEC. And they rank 108th in the preseason SP Plus by Bill Connolly at ESPN. And just for comparison, Middle Tennessee State is 115. UMass is uh, 129. We won't say where UConn is, but it's closer to UMass than, than anyone else. Um, so that that's my thinking as to why that's a winnable game, whereas Wyoming ranks 80th. So combine that with the fact that it's a first-year head coach, there's probably going to be some a lack of continuity. Everyone's trying to get established, um, kind of bring the team together. I think it's something where, where – there's a possibility for a win, but you're right. Bad SEC athletes are probably better than, you know, most of the same similar caliber uh, AAC athletes, which is what UConn was recruiting from. Do we have to bleep AAC out? Um, can I say that? <laughs> um, Sorry. We just can't call it the American and you can't bleep to, that out. You can bleep I have that to credit out. Mike Resco. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no. Yeah. We get like, three mentions max, you know, per podcast. And so uh, we just used up a couple of them and we have one more for the rest, but yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting conversation. I I think Purdue is, is, you know, a good example of like big 10 talent, just going to, you know, they're in a pretty good position in terms of their coaching situation with Brom and what they've been able to do. Um, And it's going to be early in the season with Purdue. That's the other thing that, I think makes it really tough on UConn. That's, that's game number three. Um, but I, I do think that's an interesting point or a valid point about Wyoming and Vanderbilt. And then to add to that for you, it's obviously Wyoming's at home, whereas Vanderbilt's on the road. But I do think disarray, new coach, um, there's, there's a possibility of that thing just being blown up and them doing, you know, maybe some of the youth, youth movement things, uh, especially maybe by that point in the season. Um, whereas like Madigan said, I mean, I think this team is going to know the stakes of that portion of the season for themselves, right? Like a lot of coaches say they prepare for each kind of chunk of the season, one quarter at a time. So, you know, if we look at the first four, that's figure it out, you know, play the games, figure it out. Um, next four, try to cop some wins. And then the next four is going to be, um, try to end on the high note with middle Tennessee, but then folks, Clemson, UCF, Houston, uh, do not get your hopes up for, for the upset of the century to happen at, at one of those games. So in terms of ending the season on a high note, it's going to be that stretch of the season that, that you pointed out, Matt, again. Um, and I think they'll be, they'll be building up to that and, you know, trying to do their best at the end of the season. And some other teams might be in different situations, particularly, you know, Vanderbilt, maybe UMass, we will see. Yeah, it's going to be a really, probably just a streaky 
season, no matter what, I feel like the losses and the wins are going to come in bunches just because of the nature of the schedule. Um, I mean, we, the Houston, you know, Clemson, UCF, Houston, they're going to get smoked, but uh, they've also, they've done it before. They beat Houston at home before. Um, and that Houston team is probably a little better than this one is going to be when they, when they come to the rent. But um, obviously that's a lot of anecdotal evidence and not a lot of actual facts, but yeah, it, it's really going to be, I think it should really almost, we should look at this season as a nine game season and just see how UConn does in the first nine games. Um, and you might even have to trim it down more just because the fresh, the Fresno state game is, is going to be ugly. Even, even if the score isn't ugly, I just can't imagine that it's going to go that well. Um, so maybe it's really like an eight game season and you take the, the first two thirds of how UConn plays and try and evaluate off of that because the talent disparity is going to be so massive in that first game. Um, and then those last three games against premier opponents, it's going to be really hard to evaluate. So I think you just need to look at those eight games kind of in between and see what this team looks like now and what the future looks like. All right. So we have done a pretty exhaustive run through the, the best you'll get in the world an audio or written format from the folks at the Yukon blog going through the position groups and the schedule. We will end with a couple of predictions. Um, let's go with total wins and uh, which quarterback you think will be named the starter and or play the most snaps. Uh, I'll go first and, and set the tone for it. Um, I, I will put it at, I'm going to put me down for three wins and give me Swaggy Z at QB for, for the, for earning the starting job and or playing the most snaps. I, I want to open the door for the situation where someone is named the starter, but then gets injured um, or where Randy Edsel doesn't tell us who is named the starter and who is injured. And we just don't know, which will be very disappointing, but um, I'll go with three wins and Swaggy Z. Yeah, Mon, I think we should just clarify too that the most gambling services have UConn's over under for season wins at two and a half. Um, Amon obviously went over there with three. I apparently have been drinking a lot of the Randy Edsel Kool-Aid. I, I think this could be a four win team and I might really regret that after 15 minutes of the Fresno state game. But um, I truly believe that if UConn can, can beat the two FCS teams, I think there's two wins that they can pull out of there. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet my life on UConn winning four football games this year, uh, but I think it's attainable and I don't want to be, I want to be a little different. I don't want to say three like everybody else. So I'm going to say four wins and um, it's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be one of the weirdest football seasons that we've probably ever, ever seen just because of the nature of the schedule and, and how the team is and everything. And I'll go with, with Swaggy Z as my starter as well. I think he's got big enough arm to make all the throws and hopefully his decision making has improved a little bit and uh, could be a real offensive weapon alongside Cam Ross and Kevin Metza. So we'll see. So Dan's one up me here, so I guess I'm going to have to go one more on him and get – no, just kidding. Uh, the three wins for me. Uh, I think that uh, yeah, if, if we put down uh, Holy Cross and UMass as uh, the most probable wins on the schedule, I think that uh, I'm still even going with Yale as kind of a toss-up, but I think there are enough toss-ups on the schedule here between Yale, Wyoming – uh, Middle Tennessee State. Uh, I think that uh, UConn should definitely, uh, definitely kind of uh, eke out uh, three wins. Uh, I think that's uh, definitely the most uh, safe vanilla pick. I also think it def it says something that on most betting services uh, over two and a half is uh, is uh, w worse odds than under two and a half. Just uh, by the way that uh, gambling works, but. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's what I'm going with. And uh, in terms of uh, quarterback, 
Um, I think it's going to be a uh, uh, swaggy Z. Uh, someone uh, much uh, smarter and uh, more handsome than me came up with that nickname. I heard. Wow. And uh, we all like Swaggy Z in this house. Uh, very. We've all the, the name we all know and love, Swaggy Z. Um, I, I I do also think it says a lot that a uh, uh, is listed as the uh, hold, uh, holder for the snaps on the depth chart. That that's right. Uh, we're not giving any credence to T.J. Morgan or uh, Cameron Harrison not being on the depth chart, but. Kuchewski being the holder is the, is the key to unlock this whole whole situation. You think he tipped his hand with that? That he was like, this is clear, you know, this guy is clearly not starting. He's going to be the holder. I think is I think is not a nine-dimensional chess game. Yeah. The, 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 the 9,000 IQ play was, it left one, one little glitch in the matrix. Or it could be just an extra thing that they have to game plan for on special teams where, you know, this guy, Kajuski, he could, he could be the starting quarterback. That's how good he is. And he's holding for extra points. UConn could run anything out of that formation big, now. Big two-point threat. Big yeah, two point right. Threat, Stephen Krajewski. So that's what they've called him. Uh, unlock every school. Well, we, we, we do wish Steven Krajewski the best in everything, even though none of us predicted him to be the, the starting QB, certainly. Um, we can all admit that it's up in the air, and we were all making a complete guess based on very little uh, visual evidence that we have to work with. That is the name of the game. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our football preview podcast. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>